Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. Mixed with blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar for the perfect balance of sweet, salty, and sour every time. Discover legendary taste with Cayman Jack, America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. And this is Love to See It, an obsessively detailed recap podcast about reality dating shows like The Bachelor and other pop culture that makes us laugh, cry, and curse the patriarchy. We can't live with these shows and we can't live without them, but we can break down every juicy moment and unpack all the weird messages these shows send us about love, sex, and dating. Welcome to Love to See It, a podcast about how Bloomingdale's breeds true love. I mean, fate and capitalism. Name a more romantic combo than that. I bet you can't. (laughs) Name a more iconic duo. Today, we're (laughs) heading back to 2001 to revisit the sweetest, hot, chocolatiest holiday rom-com in history, Serendipity. And here to discuss it with us is our dear friend and journalist, Laura Bassett. Laura, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I haven't seen this movie in so long. What a treat. Sam, it was truly just like a big, big bowl of hot chocolate right to the face to revisit this movie. (laughs) Uh, A little housekeeping first. A reminder that we're talking about F-Boy Island season three on Rich Text this week. This is, of course, the former Bachelorette Katie Thurston season. So if you want to hear how that went for her. You can check out our pod. You can find it at claireandemma.substack.com. I also just wanted to thank everyone, all of our listeners, for your support in the wake of the email we received that I discussed last week on the show. I've been trying to get back to all of your kind messages, but please know that even if you don't hear back from us, we have been reading every single one of your emails and DMs, and I am just so endlessly grateful for them and for this community. Yeah, I was really sorry to miss that taping, but I listened to the podcast and Emma, you expressed yourself so well. And I'm glad that the response has been appropriately (laughs) recognizing that. So thanks to everyone for your support. And let's get into it. Laura, what is your relationship with holiday rom-coms as a genre? Tell us. 
Well, so I think uh, personally that the reason that I am in so much therapy is because of rom-coms in general. Um, <laughs> Relatable. And, spe- and specifically holiday rom-coms. Uh, I grew up in a very small town in Louisiana and serendipity gave me a very unrealistic idea of what it was going to be like to date in New York City. Um, <laughs> I got here and it is not like that. Uh, you don't just I'm go. Shocker. I mean, unless you are like the girlfriend that Jonathan has at the beginning of the movie when he meets Sarah, right? right. And then it's sort of similar to that. Unless you're the one who gets dumped because he's looking for some random woman's number on a $5 bill. Like you are not having that experience in New York. No one's taking that perspective when they're watching for some reason. We're all like, oh, I'm going to be Sarah Thomas. Exactly. Yeah. LOL. Jokes on us. Yeah. People talk about sex in the city. Serendipity is so much worse for giving you unrealistic expectations of New York City, I have to say. Yeah. My reality, so true. My reality in New York is if I tell a man, you know what? I'm not going to give you my name or my number. Like, if we see each other, we see each other. Like, that's me rejecting him. So, like, I don't understand this as a, as a way to find someone again. That's it's and the ultimate also, playing hard to get. He'll <laughs> he'll never he'll never think of you again, and you'll never <laughs> think of him. Like the yeah. they you just people just disappear from your brain the minute you like walk away from them. You're like ah, yeah. and then you'll see someone on the subway like seven years later and be like, is that a local celebrity? Did I go on a date with them, or have I just seen them <laughs> on the internet? Like, it's a yeah. level of familiarity. So why did you choose serendipity from our shortlist, given how it has psychically wounded all of us? Well, because most uh, holiday rom-coms I've seen like 4,000 times. And uh, (laughs) I want to say I saw serendipity in the movie theater once. Same. Yeah, and I remember really loving it and thinking it was super romantic at the time, and it stuck with me. And even re-watching it, there were lines where I was like, oh, God, I remember that. Like, when she gets the, she has the Prada bag, and then her friend gets Prado. Like, I remembered that, you know? (laughs) Um, But I wanted to revisit it because it was the only one that, like, I had good memories of, but it had been so long that I knew it was going to be a completely different experience re-watching it. Yeah, I think we we all had that similar experience of like, wow, the most romantic movie ever when we were teenagers. Yeah. How does it look now that we're in our <laughs> mid to late thirties? A like, little oddly, different. A little different. <laughs> a little different. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start with some background on this movie. Serendipity was released on October fifth, two thousand one. I like you, Laura, did go see it in the movie theaters and was enraptured by it. The screenplay was written by Mark Klein. Like so many of the rom-coms we talk about from this era, it was directed and written by a man and marketed to women. Uh, And this seems to be kind of Mark Klein's biggest movie. Also, it's his first IMDb credit. It was directed by Peter Chalsom, whose resume is, I would say, eclectic. He directed... 2001's, like, mega flop, like, famous for being a flop, Town and Country, starring Diane Keaton. He also directed 2004's Shall We Dance with J-Lo and Richard Gere and Susan Sarandon. I don't know if anyone else saw that. Of course. It, it I rings certainly a bell, did. which Town and Country does not. Yeah. No, same. <laughs> I, I had to go down a Google and Wikipedia rabbit hole to discover Town and Country. I feel like it was not marketed towards our age demo. No. In no, 2001. it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> no. He also directed 2009's Hannah Montana, the movie. So, now range. that's my demo. <laughs> 
The movie stars John Cusack, who, as we all know, had been very famous since the 80s. Like, he was... Uh, he was very famous at this time. So Kate Beckinsale had been kind of a known quantity since the 90s. She was in like Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing, which has an iconic cast. But this is kind of the year that she got like mega famous because five months before Serendipity came out, Pearl Harbor came out. Oh yeah, Pearl Harbor. And yeah. that was huge. So like the, she was kind of at, I'd say the apex of her fame when Serendipity came out. Uh, her and Josh Hartnett. And oh, they're like, gonna, the sky's uh, the limit for these two. Doesn't she have to, like, she, she had to choose between Josh Hartnett and Ben Affleck in that movie, right? Yes. Yeah, it's been a long yes, time. Yes, wow. yes, that is the central that was kind of the plot. central drama of Pearl Harbor, as we all know. Not the movie, but the historical event. Is, exactly. Yeah, you know. it was like, which hot man is this one hot lady gonna choose? Yeah. That's the takeaway That's from the human Pearl story Harbor. at the heart of Pearl Harbor. <laughs> <and the laughs> event. Serendipity also, I will say, has a pretty stacked supporting cast. We've got Jeremy Piven, John Corbett, and Bridget Moynihan, who were both currently, like at this time, in Sex in the City. So everyone was very aware of them. Playing like basically the same roles, too. Yes, yes. <laughs> and Molly Shannon, of course. Also, like a very strong cameo from Eugene Levy. Yeah. I actually think the supporting cast is one of the reasons this movie feels like it hits, like it feels like a well-made movie that has those moments we remember. Because would we remember that fake Prada purchasing moment if it weren't for Molly Shannon's performance? Like Molly Shannon, Jeremy Piven, Eugene Levy, they're selling these little bit moments so well that they make these these little scenes that we remember for years, even though the movie is not that good, you will always remember Eugene Levy, like strong arming Jonathan Cusack into buying a purple velvet suit because yeah, come on. Apparently, apparently they had to tell him to like tone it down because he was stealing the scene <laughs> so much. And then the end scene where Eugene Levy comes back, they added that after the fact because he was so good. They were like, he needs to return. We need closure. We have to do reshoots. Yeah, we have to do reshoots. Exactly. Something I found interesting was that Jennifer Aniston actually turned down the role of uh, that Kate Beckinsale plays. Sarah. To uh, Sarah to avoid being typecast in rom coms because she was in friends at the time and she was like, I'm just in an endless rom-com in Friends. Yeah, and she was in rom-coms during her Friends era, and then she, yeah, she t- kind yes. of transitioned Picture away. Perfect, yeah. anyone? Who, uh, who, excellent, 1997. I love that movie, yeah. I love that movie too. <laughs> that's, Serendipity. That's, that's the one we're rewatching now. Please. Honestly, the, I think that's like a summer rewatch. I think we actually should, because the fashion in that, so good. honestly, it holds up. <laughs> Jennifer Aniston, iconic. Serendipity was also produced by Miramax, which, yes, is Harvey Weinstein's company. So, you know, some (laughs) stories came out about the making of this movie after Me Too. And something that I think really shaped the reception to this movie is that it came out, like, three and a half weeks after 9-11. Yeah. And a lot of this movie is set in New York. October 2001, and it is in New York. Yeah. Rom-com. So they had to scramble to digitally remove shots of the Twin Towers yeah, which, from I the mean, film. They, they had to. They chose to. Like, they it chose to. It's this weird thing where 
they could have left them in, but they clearly didn't want that to be. A, I think there was a, a sense point. at the time, like almost every show and movie that was set in New York did this. Yeah. And it, it's interesting looking back now, the director, Peter Chelsom, has said that he wishes that they didn't do that. And he says that Weinstein was like very insistent. But I don't think Weinstein was like alone in this. I think yeah. it was kind of an industry thing right in the wake. It is just odd to look back on this idea that's like, oh, the right way to handle this is to memory hold the existence of the Twin Towers. What a way to honor the memory of everyone who just died in those towers by pretending that they were never there. It's kind of a, a strange reaction, but everyone just wants to not have to, you know, deal with any reminder of the event in their movie or TV show. So that's the choice that's made. Yeah, it feels like fundament a very fundamentally American reaction. Like, yeah. oh, what, what if it's that really traumatic thing just like actually didn't exist? Yeah, that, that'll solve that, it. That's not real. It, it's it's, it's going to distract from our rom com. We have to- yeah, yeah. Uh, it was also the first New York City movie premiere that happened nine eleven. Oh, and apparently a lot of the cast and crew were like very split about whether they like didn't want to attend at all. They were like, this feels inappropriate to have this like glitzy glamorous event. They were very torn about it. Um, but Harvey Weinstein was like, no, you're you're getting out there to my fucking premiere. We're doing it. What a guy. And in 2020, it came out amid, you know, the ongoing Me Too revelations and related revelations about Harvey Weinstein that Harvey Weinstein was very angry at Kate Beckinsale because she chose to wear a white suit to the premiere instead of a dress. And that was a choice she made to be more respectful to the sensitive moment. They're having this premiere that she and the rest of the cast weren't feeling that great about having it all. She's wearing, instead of like a sexy dress, a pretty full coverage white, like drapey suit. Honestly, she looks awesome. <laughs> and she's came back in sale. She can do yeah. whatever she wants. Uh, Harvey Weinstein disagrees with that assessment. Uh, she told Vulture, quote, The minute the door closed, he started screaming, you stupid fucking cunt, you cunt, you ruined my premiere. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. He said, if I'm throwing a red carpet, you get in a tight dress, you shake your ass, you shake your tits, you do not go down it looking like a fucking lesbian, you stupid (gasps) fucking cunt. And there's more stuff that he says that would involve a lot of bleeps, but I want to spare the ears of our listeners because I my mean, God. Yeah. Good God. My God. He just keeps going. And this is a meeting that he had gotten her to bring her young child over to his home to have a play date with his child. And then the minute they got there, he got enlisted the nanny to take the children out of the room, close the door and started screaming about how she didn't shake her ass enough at his fucking premiere. And if he wanted pussy on the red carpet, then that's what he gets. I, wow. Yeah. She says she also (laughs) was uh, like low key punished as a result of this interaction within the industry. I mean, yeah, it's interesting to think about the fact that her career did not really blossom the way that it would be expected to, given what had happened to her that year. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah, that this had something to do with it. But I'll tell you what, I bet she never agreed to a play date again. So that (laughs) really showed him. It's hard to find good families to have play dates with. So. God. (laughs) Poor Kate Beckinsale. 
I did notice this, this is a little bit of a uh, digression, but um, I did notice that this movie was dated uh, in a, like there were lesbian jokes and fat jokes and stuff in the movie that like stood out to me now. They wouldn't fly now, but like when you yes. think of it as like a Harvey Weinstein produced film sort of written and directed by a man, like you can kind of feel that in the film. And that yes. was very common in rom-coms around this time, like especially the less critically acclaimed ones that you rewatch and you're like, oh my God, all of the filler matter between the romance unfolding is just homophobia and fat jokes. Yeah. Like that's everything. And, and some misogyny thrown in there in a yeah. nice little mix yeah. all connected yeah. together. Yeah. That's, that's very much, very much of, of the moment. Unfortunately, I'm thinking of that terrible movie. Summer Catch. Summer Catch yeah. that we recapped. Oh, also God. Which was notable for this. Extremely egregious, like makes this look that's like a so- social justice warrior film. Jessica <laughs> Jessica Biel and Freddie Prinze Jr., right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Oh, wow. yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Some of us also knowledge. saw that in theaters. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what a flex. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, the, the fat jokes are like basically nonstop. And there are some standout, um, <laughs> standout in a negative way moments of like homophobia and transphobia, which we will definitely get into. Let's touch on the reviews quickly. Like The Family Stone, reviews were quite mixed for Serendipity. It has a 59% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, I think we can all understand why its ratings were not uniformly glowing, <laughs> having recently rewatched it. Um, it's interesting, though, to see how the timing of its release right after 9-11 and the sort of dreamy, romanticized vision of New York, how that influenced the way some reviewers reacted to it. Um Rex Reed at The Observer called it fluffy and innocuous as Cool Whip. It is nevertheless uplifting, romantic, and delightful, further enhancing the world's enduring love affair with the Big Apple, the kind of movie we need more of right now. At the same time, Peter Travers at Rolling Stone takes the opposite angle, which is basically, if Hollywood's response to terrorism will be to exile harsh reality in favor of the pretty side of life, the result may turn out to look like serendipity, God forbid, which I find (laughs) to be such a hysterically funny reaction to the fact that there was a rom-com made in the same world as a terrorist attack happening. Especially because it was not a movie made in response to a terror attack at all, because it literally hadn't happened. happened. (laughs) It's so weird. It's like, wow, is this how you guys are going to address this? And it's like, no. It's like, no, absolutely not. It's actually just a rom-com. It's a rom-com. I mean, that is... This is just like the post-9-11 version of what we see from so many male critics around this time who are reviewing rom-coms but have absolutely no respect for the genre of a romantic comedy. So they're just like, oh, wow, predictable plot. And this is how you're going to talk about the terror threat to the United <laughs> States. And it's like, you don't get it. This is the sir. official Hollywood response to 9-11. Yeah, yeah exactly. Can you I believe enjoy... they don't mention terrorism at all? <laughs> what a what a joke. Wow. The, the silence was deafening. <laughs> yeah. I did enjoy Lisa Schwartzbaum's review at EW where she kind of praised the movie's breed of, quote, New York City romantic magic, which is clearly what got you at the time, Laura, and also (laughs) concluded that, quote, serendipity has no business working, but it does. And to me, like, the generous reading of serendipity is that, where you're like, this shouldn't work, it's deranged, but somehow enough pieces are delightful 
in a way that makes it watchable. Yeah. I think that Serendipity is actually the exact kind of rom-com that I sort of miss that is bad, but it still feels like an actual movie and not like a piece of wallpaper content that I can find on a streaming service. You know, there are real good movie star actors in it. Everyone's trying, like everything's (laughs) working towards the goal of creating a a really absorbing escapist rom-com that I can sink into. And it doesn't have to be a very good one. It just works. (laughs) And that kind of doesn't exist anymore, in my opinion. It's true. That's what we, I think that is why I love doing these episodes, because that is just a thing that I really miss in my life. Like, whether or not these movies sent me to therapy, which they probably did, (laughs) uh, they feel like really essential to, to my love of like media and entertainment. Yeah. Roger Ebert, though, did not like the movie. No. <laughs> uh, he he often gives a more generous reading to rom-coms and other male critics of the time. But he's right. There's a lot about this movie that doesn't work. He gives it 1.5 stars. Oh. Yeah. I oh. think it's literally the lowest rating we've seen him give any movie we've <laughs> recapped that I've looked at his review of, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, watching it back, I'm kind of with him. I'm, I'm with Ebert. Yeah. I've, I've never I mean, said he's, not wrong. he's not yeah. wrong. He's not wrong. He says uh, that the leads must leave themselves in the hands of fate. Fate I have no problem with. Leaving themselves in the hands of this screenplay is another matter. Oh, (laughs) so true. So true, Raj. (laughs) And on that Uh, note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back to dig into the the blow-by-blow of this movie. Can you keep up? I like Okay, so you got engaged. Congrats. Now you may be wondering what comes next. If you're planning a wedding, the first thing you need to know about is Zola. With Zola, you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place. From the day you get engaged and search for the venue to the day you send out your save the dates, make your registry, and even taste your cake. Zola has literally everything you need to make the whole process super easy and actually even enjoyable. There's even a five-star app that helps you plan on the go or, you know, from your couch, which is certainly how, uh, if I was planning a wedding, I would definitely want to do it as loungily as possible. (laughs) So important. I also just know myself. I, I know that planning any kind of event, like even a birthday party, can get very stressful. And so it's been really cool to see friends use Zola. It really seems to make everything a lot less stressful. And as a frequent wedding attender, I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift. Easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you, Zola. Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A.com. I am so glad that it's finally warming up. And it also means that I just want to have fun this summer and I don't want to be worrying about meal prep. And luckily, I can do something about that with Factor, especially because they have so many meal options like Protein Plus, Keto, Vegetarian, 
something for every diet. Their fresh, never frozen meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Make your whole day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. I love having a few factor meals just sitting in my fridge, especially because I work from home. It's so nice to finish up a taping and not have to figure out what to cook myself. Just look in my fridge and be like, oh, in two minutes, I can be eating mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice or tomato basil chicken risotto or Santa Fe style green chili beef skillet. And they always have a nice like vegetable side. It feels well-balanced. I feel full after, and it's not a headache at all. Head to factormeals.com slash LTSI50 and use code LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code LTSI50 at factormeals.com slash LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while or even not that long knows that we love article. I mean, honestly, I'm looking around my home right now. Coffee tables from article, that lovely chair out on my deck, article, our big console, article, I'm my bed frame, article. This is an article household. It is. And it's, I mean, it was an inspiration to me. We finally got our first article piece of furniture recently, our new couch. And my husband and I are both constantly just like, how did we live before this couch? This is such an improvement over what we had before. It's so comfortable. It just seems to get more comfortable every day. I mean, it's the couch you dream of. And the reason that we have both been able to find ideal furniture on Article is because Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, Scandi, and boho designs makes furniture shopping simple. And their team of designers are all about finding that perfect balance between style, quality, and price because we all want the best of all of those three things united in one piece of furniture, right? Plus, they're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and, you know, looks good doing it. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash LTSI, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash LTSI for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. And we are back, and it's time to get into the meat of this film Specifically, the important role, the essential role that Bloomingdale's plays in brokering this love story. I'm starting to feel like Bloomingdale's is a character in like basically every holiday movie, (laughs) holiday romance made before 2010. Like every movie now, I'm like, we open in a department store. It's Bloomingdale's (laughs) at Christmas. (laughs) Um, So yes, we open in Bloomingdale's at Christmas just a few days before the big day. It's bustling. It's decorated for the holidays. And we are watching a single pair of black cashmere gloves being carried in a wire tray by a store employee as it travels down an escalator, through the crowd, and back onto its rack. It's the last pair of black cashmere gloves, and moments later, it is grabbed by two different hands belonging to two different but compatible hotties. 
Jonathan, played by John Cusack, and Sarah, played by Kate Beckinsale. It is the last pair of black (gasps) cashmere gloves in the store. They don't even have a basement. Or an (laughs) attic. They don't have a stock room. If they have it, it's out. And so Jonathan chivalrously offers the gloves to Sarah, who demurs. He says, look, I'll put them back on the rack. You can just take them. It's fine. Another man immediately swoops in and claims them for himself. And we then have one of the most problematic meet-cute conversations of any movie I've ever seen. Yeah, they, they go straight into the trans conversation. Yeah, I whoa, was like, whoa, first. whoa, <laughs> didn't remember this one. This is not one of the lines that stuck with me. This is one of those things that I think if you really pressed me on what happened in the scene, I would have remembered it, but it is striking to me how little impression it made, clearly, that it's not a yeah, strong memory none. I associate with the movie. So Jonathan and Sarah protest, oh, we're taking the gloves. We're just discussing them. It's a very special gift we were discussing. And the the man, the interloper, says, well, who are they for? And they say at the same time, my girlfriend and my boyfriend. How can they possibly explain this? He's like, please try to explain. And they explain that the person is currently Sarah's boyfriend. But in 18 months after the operation, he, no she, will be Jonathan's girlfriend. And they're like, we did it! Uh, It's like one of those brain teasers that you see written on, like, a big piece of paper on TikTok or something. It, like, glazed over me at first, because I was like, that can't be what they're talking about. They're just... And then I was like, oh, oh, Oh. no. They went there. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) I wish they had not. Yeah, I really, really didn't love this. So... The, the crazy thing about this to me, watching this in 2023, is just how pre-culture war this is. Like, it's obviously very problematic <laughs> by any correct and current understanding of transness. Like, the idea that this person is now a man, they'll become a woman through an operation. It's also, like, treated as this huge, ridiculous joke, which obviously it also is because... That's not how real trans people work, Work where they're like, I'm a man now and I have a girlfriend, but I plan to have an operation in <laughs> six months and then I'll become a woman and I'll... Like, that's not... Obviously, it's a joke. But it doesn't have the kind of, like, moral horror around it that the right now takes either. So it's not politicized at all in the same way that it is now. It's just yeah. dated and offensive in a completely old school way. I agree. <laughs> what else is there to say? I don't yeah. want to linger Honestly, too much on this. Yeah, yeah but, I mean, um, uh, so many movies were were anti-trans in ways we didn't even see at the time. I mean, you look back at like Ace Ventura and the, you know, when he's like scraping uh, his well, mouth that's... and vomiting because he accidentally, you know, like it's... Yeah, it's, and that one did make an impression yeah. on me. That is probably the most egregious right. um, example that I remember from childhood. But it, yeah, I think it is just indicative of the lack of education surrounding transness at the time where it was the kind of thing that that evoked so little from people other than like oh a passing reference must be a joke right right, right. so it's not treated seriously really in in any way in a way that is problematic or in a way that is representative right like yeah it's not markered in any way as like they're being edgy no. or they're being offensive or they're being progressive. It's just they're being silly. Right. They're doing like a silly little bit together. And so they're rewarded 
with the gloves by this mystery man, and they decide to celebrate with hot chocolates at Serendipity. I rewatched this scene so many times. It was like, I must be missing the moment where they decide to leave this department store as two strangers <laughs> and go grab a hot chocolate. But it's just like, no, they just, they went to celebrate as you do when you I actually split a pair of gloves. I actually think this is one of the things that makes the movie feel like a real movie to me is that there's no anxiety about explaining this. <laughs> they're just true. like, and then cut to serendipity where they are now. And your your imagination can fill in how they got here, right? That's well, the kind of confidence in its narrative <laughs> that a real like, movie has. It is confident. I, I paused on the same bit too, because I was like, what? And then I realized <laughs> there's a line where she says, how could I ever repay you when he ends up giving her the gloves? Yes. And I guess her way of repaying him is to buy him a hot chocolate next door. But at like serendipity. Yeah. At no point Obviously. am I ever shopping at Bloomingdale's and think about going to have a dessert with a random man, you know? Well, you're not like Sarah. You're not Sarah. Sarah <laughs> is her own breed of woman, as we learn throughout this movie. Uh, they are having hot chocolates at serendipity, and we're learning about the kind of woman that Sarah is. For example, she has a boyfriend, but she's really excited to be having hot chocolate with a man who turns every single line of the conversation into an opportunity to hit on her. She likes it. I she's like, didn't realize until this rewatch how creepy Jonathan is. so fucking creepy. It's nonstop. She can't say basically anything without him being like, oh, you like fate. Well, here's a story about fate. Jonathan and the gloves. Jonathan meets a hot woman and there are gloves. <laughs> what do you think about that? Huh? He's like, I, I do have a girlfriend, obviously, yes. But that will not stop me from <laughs> relentlessly hitting on you. There are so many red flags in this scene. <laughs> Disaster. Just, so, yeah. Uh, Sarah, actually, this is where we learn about Sarah's thing about fate because she says she loves the name of the co- of the shop, the, the hot chocolate place, because it means a happy accident. And it's such a beautiful word. And then she's like, but I don't believe in accidents, actually. I only believe in fate. And Jonathan is a skeptic. And so they have this little conversation about what she means by fate. And she's like, well, we make choices, of course, but I think the universe like sends us little signs and it's our job to follow those signs in order to be happy. And he's like, okay, sure. Like, we're, we don't feel the same way about that. As far as I know, we have nothing in common. Like, that's the only thing I know about you. And I disagree, but I think we should be together. <laughs> She sort of smilingly puts him off and he ends up walking her to her cab and he's like, you should give me my num- your number just in case. She says, in case of what? And he says, in case of life, meaning in case I dump my girlfriend at some point and I want to call you <laughs> and ask you out. And he's like, I don't even know your name. How would I find you? I'm Jonathan. Does that make you want to tell me something? And she says, yes, it does. Merry Christmas, Jonathan. And off she goes, leaving him frustrated and bereft. He slumps to the subway in his corduroy jacket. It's like snowing. He's wearing like a light <laughs> fall Inappropriately jacket. dressed throughout this entire film. Apparently it was filmed in August. So it makes sense. Very clearly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Kate Beckinsale said that they were all just like aggressively sweating during every single scene. <laughs> He's like, can I get away with the corduroy jacket? Like, that looks warm enough, right? I truly can't handle a parka right now. And at the subway, he realizes he's lost his scarf. So he heads back to Serendipity, where he finds Sarah standing, holding the scarf 
and her little Bloomingdale's bag with the glove, which she had to go back because she forgot that. The magical music is swelling. She turns to look at him. They gaze at each other raptly. This is fate pushing them back together. Clearly, it's a sign. You have to to listen to the signs. (laughs) So it's time to go ice skating in Central Park, obviously. This is this, the moment when we see Sarah's outfit under her coat, which is an outfit I have never forgotten. It's one of the things that stuck with me from this movie, which is like a tight little black mini skirt, sheer tights, and this sweater knit from multicolored yarn. It's a good outfit. I definitely tried outfit. to recreate it many times, and <laughs> I could not because I'm not Kate Beckinsale. It's so weird how it doesn't play the same <laughs> on me, a non-Kate Beckinsale woman. My, like, <laughs> mini skirt from Old Navy. <laughs> My, like, khaki miniskirt and leggings. <laughs> Not the same. <laughs> they skate. They flirt. Apparently, they're skating on linoleum because it is, again, August. August. <laughs> Which explains why they don't really look that much like they're skating a lot of the time. Um, that's what, yeah, and that's seen- now. They have like a full conversation that's like easy to hear. Not, neither of them are out of breath. It's like they're just like sitting next to each other on a park bench, except they're ice skating. <laughs> in, in the middle of Manhattan. It's so bizarre. Ice skating is hard work, man. Even on linoleum, John Cusack does not look steady, and Kate Beckinsale is, like, wafting <laughs> around the rink. Apparently, she she actually uh, was an ice skater when she was younger. Classic. I feel like I'm always finding out that beautiful, famous women used to be competitive figure skaters. It's like a pipeline of some kind <laughs> that I did not know about. Um. Jonathan is turning everything that Sarah says into a pickup line. Like, they're sort of getting to know each other, but he's not sharing anything about himself. He's like, you know, what do you miss about England? And she says, oh, my mom. And he says, if I were your mom, I'd miss you too. Ugh. Like, what? What does that even mean? That doesn't even mean anything. I mean— She didn't say my mom misses me. She said, I missed my mom. I think he's trying to say, like, I bet your mom missed you, too, but in a way that makes it clear that that's because... come on. Because he thinks she's hot. (laughs) It's like, yeah, you know what? Moms miss their children more when they're really hot. Everyone knows that. If I were your mom, I would be so into you, girl. (laughs) Like, what? Uh. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) Also, at no point is she like... What's up with your girlfriend? Like, why don't they discuss? No, they do not acknowledge that they both have what seems like quite serious partners. That would really ruin the moment, you guys. (laughs) And she, yeah, she's, she asks him some questions. She learns his favorite movie is Cool Hand Luke. And then she asks favorite moment. And he says, this one's climbing the charts. And she's like, I'm flattered. Like, Everything he has said to you since the moment he met you is just a pickup line. A like, have a little flag. more discernment. He asks her her favorite sexual position. No, she, his, she asks him. She asks oh, him. she asks him. Sorry. Okay. And then, then he falls flat on his back. And it's she, like, then she falls. That's why I thought it was the this opposite. Is, this is so interesting how yeah. we're mixing up who's doing which <laughs> yeah. thing. Because... I remember someone asked about sexual positions and then someone falls flat on their back. And I was like, are they going to mount each other? Like, what is going on? Yeah, so I guess she asks and then she falls and he says, yeah, that's mine too. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. But this is the thing I mean about Sarah being a different breed of woman. Like, Jonathan is really pushing forward this sort of creepy approach. And in this sort of old school fantasy of how flirtation works... 
Sarah's just like, yeah, I love this. Like, I'm, yeah, I have a boyfriend. I just like randomly met you at a store, but I'm so into how everything you say to me is a pickup line. And I actually want to ask you what kind of sex you like to have. (laughs) This movie was clearly written Written and directed by by men. Clearly. (laughs) Yeah, the woman just cuts to the chase and is like, anyway, so you like the eagle? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Jonathan has to put a Band-Aid on her elbow because she fell on her elbow. And, of course, they have Band-Aids. And this is, of course, I think, an extremely romantic moment. There's nothing like having a a new romantic prospect take care of you in that kind of way. It really makes them seem like a viable contender. This is the moment that stuck with me for years. Oh, yeah. This is how I learned about Cassiopeia. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he begins to look at her smattering of arm freckles, which she calls the curse of the English. And I'm like, lady, I think a lot of people have freckles on their arms. It's normal. (laughs) And he points out that that she has this handful of freckles on her arm that looks like Cassiopeia. So he draws the constellation on her arm with a pen while telling her the myth behind it. You know, this queen who's so vain brags about her beauty the gods are offended so they like fix her upside down in the stars for eternity which i don't know if the upside down part thing is fully canon but it makes for a fun line and after this magical encounter where he taught her about mythology she agrees it seems like they're fated she can give him her name and number so she writes them on a slip of paper but then a gust of wind blows it away. And that's fate, folks. This would never happen now. The wind is not going to blow your your phone away as you type, type the number in. No, everything about this movie cannot exist with smartphones. Like, it can't exist with social media. Like, the plot would just be ruined. Yeah, absolutely destroyed. She's like, I can't, that's a sign. I can't give you my number now. And he's like, you can't, like, come on. Like, we just had the best, I've had the best night of my life. I might never see you again. That, that can't be how this ends. So she's like, okay, I'll give, I'll give it a chance. Write your name and number on a $5 bill. He does so. She uses it to buy breath mints. She gives away the $5 bill and then she walks away. And he's like, no, that's not enough. What about me? I need something to find. Because of course he's going to f- try very hard to find it. So she agrees to write her name and number in a book, Love in the Time of Cholera, to sell to a used bookstore the next morning. And she's like, now every time you go past an old bookstore, you're going to have to go inside and see if it's there. Or he could just like search every used bookstore in New York City in the course of like one week and definitely find it. Like, Isn't that what Roger Ebert suggested? Yeah, he's like, has he? this man never heard of like a Libris, like he could just contact every used bookseller in the country and get them to look inside all of their copies of Love in the Time of Cholera, and he would find it in no time. And that is accurate. But he's like, no, this will never work. There are so many copies of Love in the Time of Cholera and the many millions of used bookstores in this city. It's impossible. I'll never find it. And she's like, okay, let's give fate one last chance. We're going to go into this hotel. We're going to randomly each get on a different elevator and randomly pick a floor. And if we pick the same floor out of 30, we're meant to be together now. As the elevator doors close, she tells him that her name is Sarah and she tosses him one of the gloves in the Bloomingdale's bag. And then somehow they both pick floor 23. Enter a child. They ruin everything. 
a little kid dressed as a devil gets on his elevator and presses Around every Christmas, button. Around Christmas, the Why traditional not? children's Halloween costumes. I think the metaphor... The correct the, Christmas. The metaphor is a bit heavy-handed there. Yeah. They are, they are literally punching you in the face with it. <laughs> it's so funny. They're like, well, we... Why wouldn't he be dressed as a devil? Like, it's Christmas. Of course, he's dressed as a devil, and he represents the workings of the devil against (laughs) the beautiful hand of godly fate bringing them together. And then Sarah gets off the elevator and ends up waiting for kind of a long time, which, if he had just picked that floor, he would be there by now. She sits and waits, hoping that he'll eventually turn up, but she finally gives up just before he arrives. And that's the end. Or is it? A big clock turns, clouds pass, sundial shadows shift in a time lapse. Uh, this I can't remember the last time I saw a sundial in a movie. Just incredible choice. Now, like now we would just have like a, a new screen. It'd be like five years later. Yeah, back in it's New York. Ten, it is 10 years later. It's 10 years later? I think later? it's seven. It's seven years. Oh, I thought it was 10 years. It's seven? Seven. Okay. So then maybe, I guess the, the first scene's supposed to be like in the early 90s. And okay, yeah, because, well, her, second, because in the first scene, they hadn't discovered hair straighteners. <laughs> and then seven years later, her hair is like sleek and perfect. Very straight. Yeah. yeah. No, no. It's very 2000, 2001. Yeah. She, I mean, I just want to quibble here that $5 bills usually only spend about five years in circulation. (laughs) You know, those things don't last forever. Okay, Claire, fate (laughs) does not care about facts. No, I feel like at this point, fate is like, look, I've done all I can. You guys are effing idiots. Like, you guys are thwarting me at every chance. They're like, just wait. Fate is like, just wait another like five years. Mark Zuckerberg will be inventing Facebook. It's fine. Like, you'll find each other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why do they think that it's their job to test fate in this way? Or rather, Sarah does. It's like, the universe keeps shoving them back together. And she's like, I don't know. I want to see if it'll really shove us back together. Let's try one more time. Which which brings us to the biggest jump scare of the film for me, which was when we fast forward seven years and realize Sarah is now a therapist. <laughs> because I'm like, no, dude, you were the last <laughs> person that should ever be giving people advice. This is a nightmare. So apparently Kate Beckinsale was like, we have to cut some things from this script because you're making this character seem like such like a person who would be too implausible to be an acceptable therapist. Right. Like this was a concern for her. Yeah. <laughs> it is, I think, also supposed to represent how she has changed. Yes, she no she longer Jonathan. No longer, she no believes longer in is fate. just is yeah. just going with the whims of fate. She has become hardened. Yeah. Serious. And Jonathan <laughs> is the person we check in with first. He is getting married. And we open on a scene of his best friend, Dean, played by Jeremy Jeremy Piven, Piven. giving a florid sort of stand-up routine speech about how Jonathan's fiance is the woman he's meant to be with. As the camera slowly pans around the room, it pointedly ignores his fiance. Wouldn't it be amazing if it was just Sarah and they're like, the movie's over now. <laughs> they met each other again and now they're getting married. Uh, no, it's Bridget Moynihan. Jonathan is marrying some lady named Hallie. And yeah, Bridget Moynihan is playing exactly the role that she plays in Sex and the City. She is the beautiful but but sort of just not that exciting 
sleek, polished, uh, trophy appropriate, but just she doesn't have that soul connection with our lead sort of option for Jonathan. Poor Bridget Moynihan. She is like constantly being put in these roles and also like in the media, given her relationship with Tom Brady. Yeah. It's too it's real. Like, this is this is her vibe. She's she's the girl and, uh, per- perpetually that's like perfect on paper, but that you can't figure out why you don't love. Like, how depressing is that? I yeah. know it's really. I my heart went out to how her. How would yeah. you deal with that in therapy? Like, uh, no one can tell me what I need to fix about myself. I'm literally perfect, but they don't love me, <laughs> and I can't find anyone who feels differently. It's starting to feel <laughs> like impossible. So. After this dinner, which I'm like, it's like a week before his wedding. It's not his rehearsal dinner. It's not his engagement party. They're just like, let's have them all have a dinner with best man speeches a week before the wedding. The timeline is very weird about the wedding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like he also also has like a lot of time away from her. Like he's just like, all right, we did our little dinner. Like I'll see you in a week. You know, like it's just like, when do they hang out? They don't. And that actually does seem to be unusual in their relationship because she later becomes upset about it. But yeah, it's weird. It's the week of their wedding. He's always either like working like the day of his rehearsal dinner or chasing another woman or chasing That's another woman his other job. So as he walks home uh, or walks off to do more work, I guess, uh, away from this party, he stops by one of those booksellers who sells books on a card table on the street to look again inside copies of Love in the Time of Cholera, but no dice. So even though he's about to get married, part of him hasn't really given up on that, that hope that one day he'll find Sarah's number. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country in San Francisco, Sarah is now a therapist. (laughs) Surprise! Of course. And she no longer believes in fate. She is in a session with a sad young man who is obsessed with finding a girlfriend, I have to say that maybe having someone who looks like Sarah as a therapist might not be the best thing for him at this point <laughs> in his life. He's like, and then she just walked out of the party and I didn't get her number. She was my soulmate. I'll never see her again. And she's like, you know, I just think clinging to words like fate and soulmate is so dangerous. I mean, it prevents you from really doing the real work. There are so many people you could be happy with. And he's like, do you really believe that, Sarah? And she's like, I literally do. I'm engaged to a new age musician, okay? <laughs> the range. What is going love. on? I feel like she had like a new age phase and then she met her Dude, fiance as this, part of that. This is how I know. <laughs> and he killed her belief in fate. <laughs> this is how I know the movie was written and directed by a man because it's like they go their separate ways and John Cusack gets Bridget Moynihan, who's just like literally... <laughs> Literally perfect, gorgeous. She's, you know, maybe he doesn't love her, but she's fun. She's funny. Like, she, you don't see anything wrong with her. And then, and then we go check in on our little Kate Beckinsale, and she's with Bizarro Aiden, who's, like, <laughs> playing a weird instrument for Vikings. Uh, the Shanai? The Excuse Shanai. Excuse me? The, oh. so the, the racial politics of, on the what, of what New Age Aiden is doing need to be dug into <laughs> a little bit. So. Yes. We meet we meet New Age Aiden when she goes home from work one day and finds the the house full of rose petals and candles and Lars played by John Corbett is proposing to her with a huge diamond and he has not gotten it correctly sized so the ring is too small 
Claire, I think you've forgotten that she has to unwrap about 100 <laughs> differently sized boxes first that are like... It's like a, the, Rus- uh, it's a Russian yeah. nesting like, doll. Yeah, yeah, like a Russian doll. And inside, then the smallest box is a ring box, but it's empty. And then he comes out holding it and he's like, you have to say yes first. This very much shaped my idea of what a proposal would be yeah, when yeah. I grew It's up. like the woman has to do so much labor in order for her partner to like fake her out and be like, okay, fine. Now you've earned the diamond. No, it's, it's like, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, I find it romantic. It is, it is like, proposal foreplay it's like (laughs) we're gonna really get you in the mood for a proposal the more the more unwrapping of boxes you do the tension is building the tension is building you're like where is it where's the ring um yeah and then you have to say yes and then you have to say yes and she does and he tries to force the ring on it's too small she has to be like ow please stop hurting me with your engagement ring and he's like well i'm sorry it's you're not going to read into this are you like it's just a ring size and she's like no no it's fine i'm normal now i don't believe in signs <laughs> i understand that that's all fake on that note we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with the rest of serendipity can you keep up i like Springtime vibes are in the air, and when you bring in some of the beautiful flowers that are blooming, you probably want to smell the flowers, not the litter box. But thanks to Pretty Litter, you'll be able to smell those spring flowers all you want. Nothing beats Pretty Litter's ability to instantly trap odors. It's ultra-absorbent, it's lightweight, low dust, and one six-pound bag works for up to a month. Pretty Litter's crystals change color to indicate early signs of potential illnesses in your cat. And if all of that wasn't enough, Pretty Litter ships free right to your door. You'll never run out. You won't have huge kitty litter bags taking up space. And even better, you won't have to lug those huge tubs from the store to your car or the subway and into your house. Our producer Talon has been using Pretty Litter and he just raves about how great it is, how easy it is to scoop how much better it smells. I mean, the health monitor aspect gives so much peace of mind. He's a big fan, and we know that you will be too. Go to prettylitter.com slash LTSI to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. That's prettylitter.com slash LTSI to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. prettylitter.com slash LTSI. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Oh, I'm so happy the weather is finally turning. If you, like me, have been wanting to update your wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune, then Quince is for you. You can build up a lineup of timeless pieces that will keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year. Like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part, all Quinn's items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings right on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, as well as premium fabrics and finishes. I love Quince for all these staples. I mean, linen is my favorite summer fabric. They have so many amazing linen staples. I also found my new go-to like summer running around to the playground in the coffee shop bag. It's the pebbled Italian leather 
Ooh. front sling bag. I can just fit a wallet and my phone and my AirPods in it, maybe some lip balm. Absolutely perfect. I'm so obsessed with it. And the price was exactly what I wanted to. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash LTSI for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI. And we are back and we're back to New York where Jonathan is is in the final preparations for his own wedding, and suddenly he is seeing signs about Sarah everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. There's Sarah's everywhere. Yeah, basically, it's just hearing the name Sarah, which is, I'm yeah. going to hate to break it to you, Jonathan, a pretty common name. <laughs> One of the top most the common top names. names. One top of the top name names. Out there. For, for <laughs> thousands of years, it's been one of the top names out there. <laughs> I do appreciate the uh, the soundtrack of this movie, and I thought the Hull and Oats moment with the Sarah smile outside <laughs> yeah. of the cast. Oh that, yeah, that was a nice touch. That's good. Yeah, the bike messenger is singing along to to that song outside of his cab. <laughs> his fill-in hairstylist to cut his hair before the wedding is named Sarah. There's a random woman who comes in for a lesson at the driving range where he is in his capacity as an ESPN producer filming a segment for work. She comes in and says her name is Sarah. And later he goes to his friend and he's like, there's Sarah's everywhere. Like, she's at the golf range. She's a big girl now with big hips. And it's like, yeah, why why does that have to be a point of commentary? Like, there are these constant little comments throughout the movie. There's just like, fatness. Let's comment on that. It's not relevant to anything, but... We just want to make sure that we're poking fun at or calling out or insulting whatever fat person happens to be present. Yeah. And I mean, this is the era of Shallow Hal. This is this is an intense, intense cultural mo- moment of anti-fatness. So, yeah, he rushes to the New York Times where his best friend <laughs> Dean works and begs they him to help him a find Sarah. in movies like this. Because journalists can do crimes to help you find people. And they know how to find information without being a cop, which is like gets a little bit more loaded. That is true. I would I would far rather have (laughs) a journalist. He's like, please, you've got to help me find Sarah. And Dean is like, listen, contrary to what people might believe, The New York Times is not omniscient. I can't just find Sarah. I need a last name, an old address. (laughs) Literally one <laughs> single thing. Like the thing is that you can find set. You can find so many Sarahs as someone who works. The yeah, New York he, Times. he needs he needs some information to be able to narrow those Sarahs down. Yeah, which is fair. And also, Dean likes Hallie, and he's like, "You're getting married to this nice woman that I know. This is very duplicitous because he works Thank in you, journalism, Dean. so he knows those fifty cent words." I love that, like, Dean is the voice of reason here. And then very <laughs> For, like, quickly, he's like, he's like, do it more, man. Like, <laughs> skip your own wedding. Like, all that matters is Sarah. This is the role that both of the best friends kind of play in this movie. Is at first, they're like, why are you doing this? You have a nice fiancé who loves you. And then they're, they're, they're like, actually, this is amazing. And we should definitely <laughs> try to cheat on your fiancé together. That's friendship. And so Dean leaves work. Because journalists don't have to work. Like, he's just like, 
I can be at the office working on obituaries or I cannot. Let's go he's to like, a bookstore no and look for that book again. has died today. Yeah, and okay. he's like, he's like, like, the dead people will still be dead tomorrow and the <laughs> yeah. next day. So there's no rush. And he makes a point. He, you know, he makes a good point. <laughs> That's how the New York Times works. They're like, they're dead. We'll get to them when we get to them. <laughs> Deadlines? What are those? Like, we have no standards. So they're searching all the old bookstores again and... They take a brief break to be super misogynistic and just reflect on whether this is all worth it because Sarah might not be hot anymore. Dean's like, look, British women do not age well. Years ago, she was a luscious treat. She probably looked like baby spice. Now she could look like... Old spice. Old spice. (laughs) They just wanted to get that fucking old spice joke in there so bad. (laughs) Also, these people are supposed to be like... In their mid thirties, are they? I, I thought like I'm mid twenties. Well, at this point, they've got to be. No, at this older point, it's that. like okay. it's like a decade. It's a you know yeah. around a decade later. So okay. I think they were in their twenties when they met, and they were like, you know what happens between your twenties and your thirties? Right. You become disgusting and yeah. irrelevant. Difficult to you look shouldn't at. even exist. Difficult, Difficult to look at. Yeah. A punishment, like. <laughs> Yeah. And like this is really important because basically the only two things that Jonathan knows about Sarah are that she looked like a luscious treat and (laughs) she believes in fate, which he thinks is absolutely ludicrous. So if she's not hot anymore, then there's kind of no reason for them to even have a conversation. (laughs) Yeah. What's the point? (laughs) But also Jonathan does still have his fiance, Hallie, who seems lovely. And all she wants is for him to say romantic things to her. Like, Tell me I'm the only girl in the universe meant for you. And then just when he's about to have to say that, the universe intervenes because the smoke detector is going off and she has to run to the kitchen to deal with that. And then she has to go yell at the super. Why? Because their smoke detector went off when the kitchen was full of smoke, which actually seems like the correct thing to happen. And I don't understand why she's yelling at <laughs> yeah, the super. This was weird. Like, why didn't you just have it be like a malfunctioning where the smoke detector goes off when there's not something burning. But instead you pan over to the kitchen and, and it is just like billowing. It is indeed full of smoke. I would Bill yell at the super smoke. if the smoke detector wasn't going off. That's a safety <laughs> hazard. She was like, I am so upset. My safety devices are working exactly <laughs> the way they are supposed to. How dare you? How do I pay so much in rent to have my smoke detector actually work? This is ridiculous. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sarah and Lars, New Age Aiden, are planning their wedding around his upcoming tour. He is a very successful flautist. He's sort of a celebrity Shanai player. The Shanai is an like an Indian flute. And also his music like traffics in a lot of these like sort of Eastern sounds and uh and He's concepts. also doing a lot of white saviorism in his music videos. Right. So this the whole the whole idea of, of Lars as a new age musician star is that he is appropriating like Asian instruments, sounds, and like musical concepts that the West, like Western audiences might be appealed to by, like in the sort of new age realm. And he is packaging them as like a white performer who also is, like, very Scandinavian-coded. Like, yeah, his he's name literally, is Lars. like, Lars. And he's fighting Vikings. In yeah, the, he's doing, in like, Viking shit. Video. It's, it's, it's so weird. It's like, we took all this nice Eastern stuff that you like, and we made it so white, you won't even believe. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> and apparently he makes, like, a ton of money doing this. 
he's like rolling in it. That's why. It, the- that's what bothers me is that it feels plausible that John Cusack would would like uh, Bridget Moynihan. It does not feel plausible that Kate Beckinsale would like Bizarro Aiden. He yeah. doesn't have a good personality. There's nothing. He, like he's he just doesn't weird. seem funny. Yeah. He's, he's like he's like less self aware. Aiden also. Yeah. yeah like, no. He is. He has none of John Corbett as Aiden's like charms and charisma and hotness. No. He's just like it's like she's being punished for being superstitious. Yeah, there is the the yeah. kind of the mental backstory that I ended up filling in for them is that they met when she was in her more still spiritual phase and that yes. she actually became disillusioned by, because, him, because by of him. him because yeah. he's so clearly just uh, he's capitalizing like on this stuff. He's a grifter. Yeah, whenever yeah. he's on stage, it's very like new agey, like art and mysticism. And then whenever she's with him behind the scenes, he's just arguing with his manager about tour dates and money. <laughs> He's like whining a lot about why the children in the village that he as a white man is saving in his music videos don't seem more grateful. And why don't they like offer him dinner? Yeah, we're going to get to that scene soon. Apologies. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That is one of my favorite scenes. Actually, a scene that I did remember (laughs) from this movie. So as they're at this uh, venue watching his show and then planning their wedding dates... He, see, he needs to stay and talk to his manager a little more about this planning. And she's like, I'm just going to head home. So she walks home alone. She sees a Cool Hand Luke movie poster. Jonathan's favorite movie. It's definitely a sign. So she rushes to her best friend, Eve, played by Molly Shannon, her new age store. And Eve tells her, you need to stop reading so much into things. Like, that's not really how any of this, a sign from the universe, listen to yourself. Meanwhile, she's selling, like, Casanova candles to help women find love. And she's like, I just don't actually believe in any of this stuff, basically. Like, these women are wasting their lives trying to summon love when they could just go down to the corner bar and find Mr. Good Enough for right now. And Sarah's like, you know... For someone who runs a new age store, you are alarmingly earthbound. <laughs> <laughs> I did remember that line. Like her whole life earthbound. is just vestiges of like the new age scene. Like everyone that she cares about comes from the sort of new age world, but is actually this very practical person who is just profiting off of <laughs> the fact that there are naive people who actually believe this shit. Like, Lars, Eve, no one actually believes this stuff. No. And it's hard to really see how Sarah fits into this anymore. Meanwhile, Jonathan, back in New York, finds Sarah's old Bloomingdale's receipt because Hallie has cleaned out their closet. And there's an account number on there. And I gotta say, you had a shopping bag that was her shopping bag and you didn't check it for a receipt. This man is out here checking every random copy of Love in the Time of Cholera on the street. And he just, like, tossed aside the shopping bag she had. Yeah. Did he just like, assume she paid in cash? Like, I I don't understand how he failed to check for this before. But he's like, oh, my God. Evidence. This is perfect. He rushes to Bloomingdale's to get it looked up. And this is where we have the classic scene with Eugene Levy oh. playing a Bloomingdale sales associate who takes advantage of Jonathan's desperation to sell him $800 worth of purple menswear. (laughs) 
Which incredible. He's like, you have a purple tie. You need a purple suit. And Jonathan is like, fine. And I'm like, Jonathan, ask for a suit you might actually like. You're I, that's what I was money. thinking. He's spending seven hundred dollars, and he's get a like, nice suit. Who would need an actual suit? I would wear. Yeah, like if you're gonna spend that much money, you you know it's Bloomingdale. <laughs> they have everything. Yeah, I didn't understand why he had to dress like Barney the dinosaur to get this. Like, why not? You know, it. it, it you just have to spend 700 bucks. Like, that's very easy at Bloomingdale's. I do that, like, when I sneeze at Bloomingdale's, you yeah. know? Yeah. Get a pair of, like, Gucci loafers. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I don't think that Eugene Levy specifically needs him to buy the purple <laughs> suit. He just needs $700 worth of sales. So ask for a practical gray or navy suit, and you're there. Like, it, it was a very weird... He's like, fine, I guess I'll take the purple suit if I have to. <laughs> think a little bit, Jonathan. After he has sold him all this purple menswear, Eugene Levy reveals that the account is dead and has no information. But he does offer, under extreme physical duress, as Jonathan is shaking him by the collar, to take him to the old record storage warehouse to look it up. Man, a time before digital records. It's it's just like a literally a storehouse full of dead account information. <laughs> Why would you spend any money maintaining this? I They don't anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this movie is super analog. Yeah. yeah. And there's like a comfort to that. But then in these moments, I was just like, it's hard to believe that people used to just keep giant warehouses full of outdated account information. That doesn't seem like the best use of resources either. <laughs> and meanwhile, in San Francisco... Lars is indeed watching the music video for his latest Shanae banger. And I love this scene because he's watching this like <laughs> finished music video for his song. And it seems like for the first time, he is questioning the entire concept of the video that he produced and performed in. And I want to say to him, Lars, why didn't you think of any of this when you greenlit the concept, when you were being filmed for it. <laughs> Presumably they showed you some storyboards. He's just watching the finished music video and he's like, why is this happening? Why is that happening? Why don't the villagers ask me to stay for a feast? <laughs> I'd like to have a feast. I'm probably hungry. <laughs> and his manager he's is understandably baffled because why didn't he bring any of this up before? I don't understand this whole subplot. Like, what is this bringing to the film? I don't, like, why? They're just like, this guy? He sucks. <laughs> they're like, Honestly, let's have him question his weird Viking music video. Well, I feel like they're it, they're doing something where they're like, for a woman, she needs a clear reason that her fiancé is, like, god-awful to leave him. I mean, he but, like, already for Jonathan, was. Right, but for Jonathan, they're like, she's perfect. She's perfect. It's fine, though. He's a man. There's another hot lady. We don't need to explain it any further than that. <laughs> I kind of love that they have fun with this character, even though he's a deeply problematic character. And it does, he doesn't really not... make sense for Sarah. But, like, I love for my rom-coms to have plenty of comedy in them. And Me too. And he provides basically all of it in this movie. So also, him and Eugene Levy. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Obviously. I, I kind of enjoy that Lars is so shitty. And also, he's meant to be shitty like it's very they're not trying to tell us like this man is right. cool and desirable but yeah i i really think that with lars they're trying to do something a little more like sarah regardless of whether she's with jonathan or not needs to kind of move on from this period in her life yes lars really <laughs> loves her you know 
they have a life together. He's clearly rich. I mean, she is a therapist in training, and they have a beautiful house in the Bay Area. Yeah, that's thanks to Lars. Yeah, that's Lars. That's all Shanae money, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's all from looting the the culture of Southeast Asia. Of South Asia. Yeah, it's... Thanks, thanks to Lars for for pillaging that culture so that Sarah can have a beautiful house. And after he's done sending his manager to fix the ending of this video so that he gets invited for a feast, <laughs> uh, Sarah comes up to him and is like, "I just, I'm, my head's not really in the in a good space right now. I put my keys in the freezer. I think I need a break to clear my head." before the wedding. So I'm going to go on a trip, maybe to New York. I don't know. Whatever. Obviously, New York. She buys tickets as a birthday gift for her best friend, Eve, instead of telling her the truth, which is that it's only and specifically for her personal quest to cheat on her fiance. (laughs) She also hasn't seemed to like book them any dinner reservations or hotel reservations. She needs to follow fate. Fate is going to tell her where to eat dinner. If I was Eve, I'd be so fucking pissed. And Eve is indeed And I just want to take a moment to to remind you guys that she is still a therapist with patience. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they actually, look, she needs a break. They had set it up as, like, she's fixed. Like, she's normal now. She's giving good advice. And then suddenly she just immediately veers back into, like, lying to her friend. There's something deeper in her that's calling out. And that is the, the hand of fate moving her heart to action. Uh, also, yeah, she she keeps complaining because Lars's tour is selling out, so they're adding more dates. And she's like, but I, my patience, I can't leave my patience. Like, she's like, but I can leave my patience if fate wants me to. And to go to New York wants and spend me to right now. Looking for a dollar bill that, frankly, could be anywhere by now. Because money does not typically stay in the same geographical no, location. When you, when you exit state lines, they're like, excuse me, ma'am. <laughs> can I have all of your $5 I, bills? I, yeah. We'll replace them with Connecticut state dollar bills at this time. Uh, so they are headed to New York. And now both Jonathan and Sarah are on wild quests through the city to find each other before their wedding. So they can decide whether to like have the weddings or not based on whether they find their real soulmate first. Without knowing it, Hallie and Lars have been demoted to, like, if I'm still single by the time I'm X age, I'll marry you. It's so, it's so rough. <laughs> so Jonathan heads to that warehouse with Eugene and Jeremy and finds the address associated with the Bloomies account. And they head to the leasing office to find who lived there seven years ago. And... The leasing office worker, some like pimply kid, initially refuses to give out an address because of privacy laws, right? And Dean <laughs> somehow pulls out of his hat the incredible argument that privacy laws exist to protect the wealthy only. Like, who is being protected by random dudes not being able to find your address from seven years ago? Internet millionaires. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, I, hey, I'm stalking my ex from seven years ago. If you don't give me this information, you're essentially blowing Mark Zuckerberg. And the guy's like, yeah, what? So true. I actually like, had yeah. to put... You, I, did, you had to transcribe had the to, entirety of this speech because it is so good. Yeah, he's like, who's the wealthy? 
kids your age, pimple-faced college dropouts who have made unhealthy sums of money forming internet companies that create no concrete products, provide no viable services, and still manage to generate profits for all of its lazy, day-trading, son-of-a-bitch shareholders. Meanwhile, as a tortured member of the disenfranchised proletariat, you find some altruistic need to protect these digital plantation owners. Oh, that's Marxism, baby. It's just a barn burner. Just... <laughs> An incredible moment where you're just like, yeah, no lies detected. And then you're like, wait, what does that have to do with anything that they're talking about right now? They're like, I, yeah, I actually have a right to stalk my ex. It's like if he suddenly started giving a speech about abortion rights. It's like, it's just, it's true. It's just not related. Like, (laughs) it's not relevant. No, no, no. As we, as we all know, the scourge of the internet is, in fact, directly related, and wealth inequality is directly related to me being able to personally stalk my friend's ex. Yeah. And <laughs> this wins the guy over. He's like, yeah, I do want to stick Great it to Mark point. Zuckerberg. Here yeah, he's is- like, this is not about privacy. This is about class. <laughs> yeah. And I am on the side of the proletariat, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, I feel good about that. <laughs> So they find the name of the old tenant, Sarah's, it turns out to be her ex-roommate, Sebastian Mignon, or as Jonathan isn't determined to call him, Sebastian Mignon. He's like, Mr. Mignon. And the guy's like, Mignon. Like, he's French. He's literally French. Mignon. And he's like, no, 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 Mr. Mignon. I don't, uh, Jonathan does not respect culture. This is one of the things that plays as not cute at all in 2023. It's like, oh, you refuse to try to pronounce the name of someone from a different culture correctly. Correctly. You just absolutely disdain to do that. (laughs) Okay. He learns that they were just roommates and that he didn't know uh, Sarah for very long. And Sebastian ends up directing them to a roommate matching service next to that little patisserie, Serre de Petit. (laughs) And they're like, (gasps) Fate. And so Jonathan and Dean head to Serendipity, and that address is now a bridal shop called Bless the Bride. And who is the bride? Of course, it's Hallie. And Jonathan is like, oh, my God, this has just I've been led on a wild goose chase all the way back to where where I was always supposed to be marrying Hallie, the woman that I've just remembered I'm engaged to. His rehearsal is in less than an hour what this piece of shit poor Hallie I just felt so bad for Hallie this entire film also at this point I really wanted him to show up at the rehearsal in the purple suit (laughs) (laughs) yeah what a waste how does you got a whole new outfit I was waiting the whole movie for him to wear the purple suit and he never did he'll never be wearing that he was like oh I have to buy all this menswear I'm definitely just gonna buy one that I will never ever wear (laughs) I don't have any formal events to attend soon (laughs) His his rehearsal is at the Waldorf Astoria, which is also where Sarah and Eve ended up staying, which is interesting, again, because Sarah is a therapist in training. So it seems <laughs> like they are probably using Lars's Shanae money <laughs> to stay at one of the nicest <laughs> hotels in New York so she can look for a guy that she was into seven years ago. That's called wealth mm. redistribution, Claire. It's <laughs> actually Marxism. Am I on the side of the proletariat or not? <laughs> yeah. Like, honestly, I need to make up my mind. So meanwhile, Sarah and Eve are on their own journey. Uh, after Eve learns the truth and that Sarah has no plan for what to do when they get there other than to say to the cab driver, take us somewhere in New York. <laughs> Won't even give a burrow. 
The cab driver is like, lady, this is not how I work. Like, yeah, shut the fuck up. I'm not like Can a magic just, eight ball. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> and Eva's furious, but Sarah makes a passionate speech to her about how she just keeps thinking about this guy from a million minutes ago and how she, like, maybe that's fate and she just has to do this. And Eva's like, okay, I will continue on this journey with you. So they start feeling around. They're like, what's in the air? What do we feel at this intersection right here? This feels really good. At that intersection, Eve buys a knockoff Prada wallet that matches Sarah's knockoff Prada wallet, except that it says Prado. And Eve says, well, I'll just get some magic marker and I'll fix it. And for years, I've been wondering how you could fix you can't. the metal insignia metal. with a magic marker. Every time I see that scene, I'm like... <sighs> What would that look like? Also, that's just like an extremely bad knockoff. Right. Like, put some respect on the knockoffs of New York City. Like, they are a cut above. Also incredible that Sarah's like, I also have a knockoff Prada. <laughs> no one has a real Prada in this town. And as they are standing here paying for that knockoff Prada, Sarah sees a flyer for the driving range where we previously saw Jonathan filming a segment. And she's like, this is the place. I need to go here. They head inside. Sarah's looking around. Eve gets off a pretty nasty comment about how the guys who play golf are the guys who are too fat to play tennis. And then she is immediately punished by fate with multiple golf-related head injuries. And honestly, she should just be in the hospital for the rest of the movie. She is struck <laughs> point blank in the head so hard. by a golf club moving at full speed. Like, she should probably <laughs> she be dead. She gets knocked over by the force. Yeah. She would, at bare minimum, have a real concussion. Yeah. But you know what? It's nothing that a hot chocolate at Serendipity can't fix. <laughs> and a cake, piece of cake that they do not eat. They and I was very eat. upset. <laughs> Whenever people don't eat cake on screen, it just makes me Yeah, it upset. makes me insane. <laughs> it looks really good. So they head to Serendipity, and Eve gives Sarah a passionate speech about how this whole obsession with fate, it's a lovely thought, but it's not real. People make decisions. They make mistakes. Mistakes like this trip. And Sarah's like, you're right. I do have a lovely fiancé who is ridiculous as a person, and we can both agree on that. But he does really love me, and it's time for me to grow up. I love that in this conversation, it's revealed that Eve and Sarah have no respect for Lars. But they're like, <laughs> he does love Sarah, and so she should marry him because wow. that is all that matters. And I'm like, no, really I think— says a lot about the messages given to women <laughs> right. for a very long time. They're like, well, he loves you. Meanwhile, Dean is like— she might even be better than Sarah. It's just like the Godfather 2 versus the Godfather 1. I just need to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> I just need to try all the Godfathers. And I think you got to see the first one in right. order to see the second one. And I mean, and imagine if that happens. Like, what? Then he can't, like, have Hallie because he, like, left her before their wedding to have a relationship with Sarah first. Like, I'm that's ridiculous, Jonathan. You're being ridiculous. Unless he means he literally just wants to see, like, behold her to make behold sure she's her. not still, to make sure she's not still hotter than his current fiance. I'm like, like I want to make it. sure that she aged like shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He's like, that I gotta what, just I need see to be sure. That is what Facebook is for. So you can look up your ex from high school that and be like, literally did the he age better or worse yeah. than my current partner? I need to know. Um, 
Whereas Sarah is like, it's okay that I feel like a basic level of contempt for my partner. <laughs> as long as he really cares for me, that's, that's kind of what I get. So they leave without eating that cake and Eve takes a dollar of her change. I guess she bought her own cake that was an apology from Sarah. She takes all her $5 of change. And it is the one with Jonathan's number on it. Somehow still in circulation after seven years. I guess it's been getting light years. And it's still in New York. What are the odds? Very low. Very, very, very (laughs) low. (laughs) Low to impossible. They head back to their hotel, which, of course, is the Waldorf Astoria, where Eve runs into an old college friend named Hallie. Yes, that's right. Eve is friends with both of the women that Jonathan is considering marrying, but she does not realize it. Hallie invites them to the rehearsal, because who wouldn't want to just go to some random old friend's wedding rehearsal? (laughs) Like, and even like less you weird. So much. I would love to go to a rehearsal. Of- She's like, come watch. We won't be able to speak, but you will get to watch me practice getting married <laughs> to my fiance who you don't know. And this is where we get the lesbian joke. Oh, yes. The yes. yes. She, Hallie's like, you can bring your part- partner? partner if you want to. There is this like extreme tentativeness and discomfort where it's weird that she wouldn't just be like, oh, who is this, your your friend or your partner? Your partner yeah. And instead she's just like, I guess obviously they're lesbians together, yeah, but like, I don't want to like say it. I, I don't know. I don't want yeah, to. Like, are you allowed? Are you allowed to say <laughs> lesbian? <laughs> are you allowed to say par- partner? I, mm, what's and, the correct thing? And then Sarah must cor- correct the record immediately. I am engaged to she's a like, man. A man, a yeah. man. It's a man. My fiance, he's <laughs> a man. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm engaged to a man. (laughs) (laughs) And then Eva's like, goodbye, my lesbian lover. And then she laughs and laughs and laughs. Molly Shannon just (laughs) has no delivery, even in a terrible line. (laughs) There's no reason for any of this to be that awkward. You could just be like, oh, we're actually just friends. We're old friends. We're on a girls yeah. trip together. And they'd be like, oh, cool. Nice to meet you. But then no one said, everyone's like, oh, moment of gay panic. <laughs> gay panic moment. And uh, with that, Sarah passes up the opportunity to find out where Jonathan is by going to his rehearsal. And she goes upstairs instead while Eve attends. Unfortunately, Eve does not know what Jonathan looks like. Like ships passing in the night. There's no Facebook. Sarah heads up to the room and finds Lars lying in the hall waiting for her. Every time I see this scene, I'm so alarmed because he's covered in like camel covered buckskins. And I'm always like, what is that heap of naked people at the end of the hall? Honestly, it's very jarring. And it turns out to just be Lars lying in a heap. Um, And there, she's like, how did you find me? And he's like, I just went through every hotel in the city in reverse alphabetic order starting with z and i'm like okay but then you found her room they told you her room number but they wouldn't give you a key that's an interesting compromise that they made he probably gave like gave a proletariat speech yeah you know who privacy laws protect (laughs) digital plantation owners and stalkers and murderers people who want to hide outside (laughs) of their ex's rooms in order to attack them when they least expect it (laughs) not me though i'm chill (laughs) 
And so, this, is, this is sort of passed off as, as like romantic. But if I went on a weekend trip with a girlfriend and my boyfriend showed up in a heap of like camel colored clothing and the immediate end, looking like immediate he had been stabbed, done. Like, I, yeah, I would call the cops. <laughs> yeah, no, I would feel very unsafe around this person. Like, it's clear that she wanted a break from Him. their relationship. That's why he <laughs> didn't know where she was. So, but I think that a part of this is played as like, oh, well, part of the problem with their relationship is that he doesn't have time for her. So this is a big gesture to show that like, actually she's so important to him. But I think that's that's a misunderstanding on his part of what's going on here. She's not just like annoyed that he's always busy. She is annoyed that he's not Jonathan, a man she once spent two hours ice skating with in New York City. So... We go to the rehearsal. Hallie and Jonathan practice getting married. Jonathan does a really bad job. The officiant even... Like, how can you be bad at pretending to get married? Jonathan does it. He's looking everywhere but Hallie. The officiant is like... And of course, Jonathan, at this point, you'll be looking at Hallie. And everyone's like, ha, ha, ha. If I were Hallie, I would do the same thing that Hallie does, which is basically pull him aside afterwards and start crying. Yeah. (laughs) This is awful. He's truly awful to her. He's fully gaslighting the shit out of her. Yeah, he's like, what are you talking about? Everything's normal. I'm fine. It's so normal. He's like, I will be breaking up with you tomorrow. But yeah. it's so normal. She's like, it feels like you've been somewhere else all week. And he's like, no, not at all. And she's like, Jonathan, please stop Do lying not lie to me. me. And he's like, it's just normal guy stuff, like cold feet. He's like, I'm just very nervous about marrying you. Yeah. And we're getting married tomorrow. It's fine. Like, it, I'm a man. It's funny because so I watched this initially at young enough of an age that I was like, oh, I guess like cold feet is just a normal guy yeah, thing. Just a thing. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, if I hear that a groom has cold feet, I'm not like, yeah, that happens. I'm like, yikes, that's really like, bad. That's very concerning. <laughs> Red flag. <laughs> and Hallie agrees. She's like, call me crazy, but I'd like my fiance's feet to be warm, especially when we're hours away from walking down the aisle. That is fair, Hallie. I support you. Great point. <laughs> She's like, please let go of whatever you're holding on to. And he's like, I think it already let go of me. Oof. And then, just as he's about to surrender to the the prison of marriage to this beautiful woman that he loves, Callie gives him his traditional groom's gift. A first edition used copy of Love in the Time of Cholera. Because, of course, she knows him really well. She's noticed that he's always looking through this in used bookstores. But she does, he doesn't actually own a copy. Okay, and at this point, you have to wonder why she would give her fiancé this gift without opening it and checking to see if there's another woman's name and number on the front page. <laughs> she should know well, that you why have would she to know check. That me- why would she know that meant anything? Yeah. She doesn't know. It's a used copy. She's like, it's a first edition. Like, it's not it's a, a first edition. That's first what's edition, special. But it's... Uh, also, why did... Well, yeah, no, I was like, wait, why did Kate Beckinsale have a first edition? Yeah, I was also wondering that. Hallie has like noticed this thing about him that's like a little detail only someone who loves him would know. It's not that like lavish of a gift, but it's just sentimental. It's It's like, I know you. But it also symbolizes that she doesn't know him that well, because as you note, Laura, the only reason that he looks is for the exact thing that she has overlooked, which is another woman's name and number in the front I need, like, a follow-up with Hallie, because all—I mean, this is not something that I thought about when I was a child seeing this. But as an adult, all I could think about is, like, how awful she would feel in the aftermath when she discovers that— she facilitated her fiance leaving her and like presented him 
Yeah. With this other woman's number. We basically never see Holly again. It's very cruel. <laughs> yeah, that she's was off the, that, that's, the, that's the end of Holly. Yeah, she's yeah, off screen I mean, for she's all not the hard relevant stuff. anymore. In this moment, Jonathan, he knows what he has to do. Not call off his wedding, but pretend to Hallie that everything's fine and he really likes the gift, and then go to Dean and tell him, we have it at last. We have the information we need to use the almighty power of the times to find Sarah. And they do. And then they fly to San Francisco. And they're just going to, like, Very fly normal. back before the noon wedding the next day. Extremely normal well. shit. In Central Park, Sarah is taking a carriage ride with Lars, who is still too obsessed with work. He's made this big romantic gesture, but he can't focus on her still because he keeps getting calls from his business manager and leaves her to gaze wistfully at the Central Park skating rink by herself and up at the stars. He finally joins her and he's like, wow, look at those stars. They're so beautiful. New York Famously, is- New York City. Great for stargazing. Cle- very clear. Yeah, you can see every star. And, and then he has says, her friend left and gone back at this point? Like, how, how did he just kind of commandeer this? No, she's like, now Now she's like a wedding guest. She's on the wedding guest oh, track. Oh, okay. She's, she's, yeah, she's, she's suddenly been wedding last minute invited to the wedding. Okay. So then Lars says one of the most ridiculous things in the entire movie. He looks up at the stars and he says, they all have names, you know. And it's like, yeah, everyone knows that. You don't know any of the names. Why would you bring up the fact that they have names? A fact that everyone knows, but doesn't ever really comment on unless they have something specific to say about one of the stars. He's just like, yeah, I don't know. They have names. He's like, I have a feeling that this might evoke a particular emotional reaction so that you can leave me. Is there a romantic memory associated with another man that you would like to bring up? Has anyone drawn that particular pattern on your arm via your freckles? And Sarah rips off her coat. She's probably relieved to do it because it's probably like 95 degrees. She's like, finally, I get to take off my entire coat to look at my arm. Sure enough, the stars are Cassiopeia. Through tears, she says, it's Cassiopeia. It's Cassiopeia. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm joking. <laughs> it's a sign to end all signs. Lars has noticed there are stars, which reminds her of Cassiopeia, and now she has to break up with Lars. <laughs> and that's just how it has to be. Meanwhile, Dean and Jonathan are on the plane to San Francisco, and Dean is giving one of the classic speeches of the film. Oh He's my like, God. Jonathan, you are a jackass. You're like my oracle and shit. You're out there and you're making it happen. And this is when he tells Jonathan that Courtney, his wife, who he has this sort of idyllically in love dynamic with. They're always like kissing at the wedding events and they seem all over each other. Courtney has moved out. They've been fighting for a long time, but they didn't want to ruin the wedding. So they just like hardcore pretended to still be together and in love for all the wedding events. And Jonathan's like, what happened? And he says, we just, we let it slip away. That's the point. We died. Jonathan says, what was the cause of death? And Dean says, not enough of this. And he pounds Jonathan's chest. Not enough of this. I want to be the jackass. You're the shit. (laughs) This is the speech that I assume got Jeremy Piven his role on Entourage. (laughs) Yeah. It's a beautiful speech. Dean is this interesting character because he brings in, I think as a journalist, 
he is supposed to sort of bring this sort of, <laughs> like, erudition to his perspective on all of this. Like, he is the one who is talking a lot about, like, Greek philosophers and their views on fate <laughs> and, like, the concept of like, destiny. Be a jackass, man! <laughs> yeah, but he's like, is this how oracle, men emote? You know? Yeah, yeah, apparently. <laughs> uh but yeah, there's this way in which he's both like the fratty bro and also he's like the intellect who's like, the Greeks said when a man died, only they asked, did he live with passion? And like, destinos. And, you know, he's the one who's sort of making those themes of of fate and destiny sort of uh, giving it sort of an intellectual history in the movie, which is sort of funny. Like, they're trying to make it seem really legit. They're like, no, fate. There's a long history of believing in fate. Let us tell you about it. The Greeks. The Greeks. They had a lot of thoughts about fate. And Dean is the vector for all of that, like, pseudo-intellectualizing of the dynamic between Jonathan and Sarah. So, inspired by this pep talk, they arrive late at night at Sarah's house. But apparently her hot sister, who looks a lot like her, and her sister's (laughs) blonde, douchey boyfriend are house-sitting and using it just as a sex pad. So Dean and Jonathan peek through the wide open windows and see that a woman like Sarah, a woman who looks like Sarah, is having sex with some blonde dude. Two things about this. One, these men are just doing stalking this entire movie and it's passed off as romance. And two, this is a nice reminder that Jonathan has only seen Sarah once (laughs) because a woman who looks vaguely like her, he's like, well, obviously that's her. Yeah. Yeah. It looks sort of like Sarah. Actually, she got a lot younger over the last seven years, it seems like. Um, But she looks the same. And after all of this, Jonathan, who is about himself to get married, he's like, I guess this won't work after all, because she is not sitting here celibate, gazing out the window, waiting for you to come to the door. If I had flown all the way to San Francisco and found this person, I mean, you might as well just just knock knock on the door. Knock on the door and be like, hey man, saw you having sex. Sorry, just wanted to say hi. Like something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Like, what? The only reason that doesn't happen is because it would ruin the rest of the plot of the movie. Yeah, right. (laughs) Correct. Meanwhile, Sarah has dumped Lars and she is headed back to San Francisco alone while Eve has stayed to prepare for the wedding that still hasn't been called off, even it's though it's happening, happening in like two hours. Yeah. Sarah sucks a little bit less than Jonathan. She has decided to dump Lars, even though she has not laid eyes on Jonathan again. And she's willing to take that leap and maybe be single for like 12 hours, potentially. <laughs> And then, while trying to pay for her in-flight headphones, she realizes that she has Eve's knockoff wallet, Prado, and inside is Jonathan's $5 bill. Which she has to steal back from the flight attendant first. Which has a a 555 number, which reminded me, all numbers for 555 in the early aughts in the 90s. It's just such a, like, throwback. Also, did you notice that there's no area code? Yes, that's what no I noticed. I was code. like, now there's yeah. always an area code. I was code. like, oh man, those were the days. Brings me and back to childhood. And it's like a landline. Yeah. Like you have to assume it's a landline. Yeah. Well, that's Wild. the thing. Yeah, you give out your number. You, someone's going to call you on your landline from the same city. <laughs> it was like 1992 or something when they first meet. So yeah. Yeah. Um, also, I love that this bill has stayed in the New York metro area for seven years. And... <sighs> It's about to leave and go to San Francisco. (laughs) I guess that hasn't happened. (laughs) And 
She steals it back. She gets off the plane. She finds out his address and she arrives only to be told by the super that he is getting married that day. A lot of this all involves like getting the phone number and then like calling like information to be yeah, like, can like, you find where this find... person lives now? No, that's it was a whole different way of finding people. Now you would just like text and be like, hey, remember me? And they would probably still have the same phone number. But now it's like oh, in that true. time, you it was like whenever call... you moved, you would have a new number. So you'd have to call information look them and, up in like, yeah, look the, them up the yellow page. But you can use that old phone number to pinpoint them compared to like other Sarah Thomases. and. She arrives only to be told by the super that Jonathan is getting married that day. So she runs to the Waldorf Astoria, and the wedding is being broken down. The chairs are being put away. She learns that the wedding is over. She's devastated. But then the person who is breaking down the wedding makes a comment that makes her realize the wedding was actually called off. Suddenly, hope springs. Probably Jonathan canceled this wedding because he still loves her. And now they can be together. Thank God. Of course. That's the only, you know, yeah, reasonable option conclusion. after seven years. He still yeah. loves me. Just like him showing up in San Francisco and being like, she must still love me. She must be sitting here waiting for me. Oh, she's not? Um, that's weird. I really was expecting her to be sitting here waiting for me. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jonathan has indeed finally called off the wedding, apparently like moments before it happened, based I, on the again, timeline. I say, poor Hallie. Justice for Hallie. Awful. But he hasn't gotten the girl. He's demoralized. His girl was having sex with someone else. This is the end of the line. But never fear, because his best friend, Dean, is an obituary writer. And he has written an obituary for Jonathan. Yeah. He's like, I was trying to write my best man speech, and all I could think of was how to write an obituary, because that's what I do. (laughs) So what I did was I wrote an actual obituary containing the words died last night instead of just taking that part out because this isn't an obituary. And also, instead of being about your wedding, it's all about some other woman you're into. So this is the best man speech I wrote. It's an obituary about another woman. And I did write this down also because, oh my God. It's incredible. Well, the obituary scene is now famous, right? Like, oh, this- yeah. Yes. This is yes. one of the, the key moments of the movie. This is, yeah. Jonathan Traeger, prominent television producer for ESPN, died last night from complications of losing his soulmate and his fiance. different people. He was 35 years old, soft-spoken and obsessive. Traeger never looked the part of a hopeless romantic, but in the final days of his life, he revealed an unknown side of his psyche. This quasi-Jungian persona surfaced during the Agatha Christie-like <laughs> pursuit of his long-reputed soulmate, a woman whom he only spent a few precious hours with. Dean is like, just so everyone knows, I read. dangling uh quite a dangling uh modifier there sadly the protracted search ended late saturday night in complete and utter failure because she was having sex with someone else (laughs) yet even in certain defeat the courageous traeger secretly clung to the belief that life is not merely a series of meaningless accidents or coincidences Uh uh-uh but rather it's a tapestry of events that culminate in an exquisite sublime plan. Asked about the loss of his dear friend, Dean Kansky, the Pulitzer Prize winning author and executive editor of the New York Times. Okay, buddy. Described Jonathan as a changed man in the last days of his life. Things were clearer for him, Kansky noted. Ultimately, Jonathan concluded that if we are to live life in harmony with the universe, we must all possess a powerful faith in what the ancients used to call 
Fatum, what we currently refer to as destiny. Oh, just, oh, just chills. Chills. <laughs> well, it's amazing. Away with words. It's amazing because there's a moment earlier in the movie where, sorry, what's what's the name of the character? Um um, Ari, what's his character? Jeremy Piven's character? Uh, Dean. Dean. Right. Dean. So there's a moment earlier in the film where Dean uh, says, you know, I've worked for a little paper. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called the New York <laughs> Times. And he's being all snotty about the fact that he works for the Times. Um, and then Eugene Levy's character is like, you know, figures out he writes obits. And it's kind of like, a, oh, you write obituaries for the time, you idiot, you know, kind of thing. And so yeah. there's a full circle moment where it's like, yeah, but he writes obituaries for the Times. You know, like he's yeah. like, yeah. He's like the best, His obituaries the best obituary hard, writer yeah. in the whole world, you know. It's These very, are literary obituaries. It's very writerly. It's yeah, very exactly. it's very it is, oh yeah. It's it's not, we've all seen writing clear, like this. It's not that doesn't good. mean it's good. No, no. But it no, is trying it's, it's, so hard to be the most impressive obituary you've ever read. Exactly. It's that thing that writers who are trying to be impressive sometimes do, where it's just like, what if I added a few more oh, flourishes? It's, it's incredibly That'll, pretentious, and, it's, and yeah. it says absolutely nothing. But, you know, it was, it was <laughs> yeah. a nice scene. I love how he references... Yeah, I mean, it works. Honestly, it kind of works. He references Jung and Agatha Christie in one <laughs> sentence. He He's has like, range. One part of him was Jungian, and another part of him was Agatha Christie-like. <laughs> and what, let's see if we can fit in some sort of, like, you know, uh, Kafka-esque something in here, or Dickensian. Like, let's let's have a literary reference for every part of Jonathan pra- Traeger's character. <laughs> At this point, the obstacles have all been cleared out of the way for Jonathan and Sarah. So now they just kind of, like, chill. They're like, fate's going to bring us together, I guess. So just relax and wait for that to happen. Jonathan goes to the Central Park ice rink where he just, like, sits in the middle of it while various people skate around him. I would be But also there's almost no people there. And then then suddenly there's no people. Yeah. There's no situation. It's just him. It's a private skating rink. That's classic Central Park. (laughs) You know how that happens where there's no people? I really (sighs) believed when I moved to New York City, I was like, I couldn't wait for the first, like, winter holiday season. It's like, it's just going to be me and, like, a skating rink in Central Park. Is some hot guys meeting the love of your life? Oh, God. And then said the city is just full of people who are not hot men who are trying to give you a (laughs) wrong phone moment. It's rude. It's so rude. You can't even see Cassiopeia from Central Park. I have tried. (laughs) I know. It's so (laughs) offensive. It's funny because it's such a classic trope of romance movies, too, that like, oh, now out in the country, you can really see the stars. And for them to pull the exact move in the one place where you really can't see the In Manhattan. It's incredible. I tried to watch the meteor shower last night. Nothing. You can't see anything. It's just a lot of light. A lot of light pollution. Yeah, it's out of control. So he is lying in the middle of this popular ice skating rink in a large city, taking up a lot of space just to kind of lie there while blades zoom around his face. And he watches the snow fall down on him. Until the skaters all go home. Because they know it's time for his moment. He puts on his single glove. And then another glove falls on him from above. But how? But where? Why? Is that a matching glove? Are there two of them now? He sits up and behind him we see the blurry figure of Sarah. In her like drapey polyester button down shirt. (laughs) Kate Beckinsale in this movie convinced me that having a drapey polyester button-down shirt was a really good idea. He turns. They lock eyes. She slowly, at a sort of bridal cadence, walks toward him. They 
take each other's hands as if they're going to like shake hands and reintroduce themselves. And then they finally kiss. The camera swirls around them as they make out. And then we cut to one year later, the camera's still swirling around and they're still making out. But now they're in front of the glove display at Bloomingdale's during the holiday season. And Jonathan says, happy anniversary. And Sarah has the most bananas reaction to this, which which is, when did you get to be so unabashedly romantic? (laughs) (laughs) Not when you were leaving your fiancé, for me, a woman you met one time 10 years ago. I mean, her bar is very low after dating uh, (laughs) Bizarro Aiden. It's just so funny because he, he like, literally pursued her for years against all the odds. And what gets her to say that he is really romantic is him saying, happy anniversary. (laughs) In a department store. In a department store. Yeah, whenever my husband is like, oh, happy anniversary, I'm like, you romantic. Calm down. That's crazy. <laughs> to, to be fair, I think he's saying, I think he has brought her back to the place where they first met, which is what she's saying. Yes, is romantic. it is very romantic. It is. But it yes. seems like a response to that comment in the moment. Yeah. Uh, instead, it is this romantic moment where they're back at the glove display and sharing a champagne toast while Eugene Levy harasses them to leave because it's closing time. They came right at closing time for some reason. Also, another reminder that this was filmed after the fact. And frankly, look, I don't want to give Harvey Weinstein credit for anything, but it was a correct choice. Yeah, Eugene Levy is one of the greatest character actors <laughs> yeah. of our time. Yeah, like, that was, exactly. They, we, needed, yeah. we needed comedic relief after you that. Needed, needed some yeah. comedy at the end. Yeah. As the credits roll a classic Evan and Jaren song, The Distance, begins to play. I had that Evan and Jaren album. It is such a blast from 20 years ago. <laughs> I was like, that song rockets me right back to high school. <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. Thank God. So beautiful. Thank God. <laughs> should, should we rate this film out of 10 pairs of black cashmere gloves? Yes. Who wants what to do start? You think? Laura, do you want to start as our I mean, guest? Uh, yeah, I will say I, I would have given it maybe nine the first time I watched it. And this time I found it so infuriating and annoying that uh, I got to give it like a three. Yeah, it's not good, man. I, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's just not. I, I'm going to give it a little bit more because of that thing that I described earlier where I do just feel like it gels in this way that a big budget rom-com of the, or like a, a mid-budget, mid-budget. Big, big, big theatrical release rom-com could at the time where it, it doesn't anymore. And I relish that. But I'm going to say maybe four and a half, 4.5. Like it's not good. There are parts about it that work enough that I can enjoy it as a rom-com, but it's, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give it like a five maybe just because it does it does have these like moments of nostalgia for me the the supporting cast is really good specifically Eugene Levy there are there's enough delights there to make it something that's not so painful to rewatch but it is also extremely infuriating in all of its details and all of its messaging and yeah, so we there, can't crack yeah. the sec- the second half of our ratings. Something that, like, actually didn't strike me at all the first time I watched it when I was, like, 16 and an idiot, but that I could not stop thinking about this time, is that this is a whole movie that exists only because Sarah is annoying. Like, 
It's true. Just none of this needed to happen. They met. They liked each other. Like, they could that's, exchange numbers. That's why the I whole- gave it a three this time, because I was so annoyed. And I don't remember <laughs> feeling this annoyed by her the first time. But I'm like, you meet a great guy in Manhattan? Are you kidding me? You give him your freaking number if you like him. You don't put that to chance. It's just yeah. very aggravating. Also, neither of them were engaged. Would have been, like, a lot less painful to just be like, you know what? I realized... I'm not yeah. that into you because I met a stranger and I like them better than you. Yeah. They're like, we can't. And, up- and you're, we're both 25. It's fine. Yeah. We came up with a concept for this movie that just involves them deciding that, like, that they need to have a rom-com about them. They're like, we need to make this really hard for no reason. And it's I think so that that contrived. is exactly what Eber is talking about in his review that's so correct is that, like, it is just banging you over the head with all of these coincidences that make no fucking sense. And, and like, like, the minute you start to think about any single detail, especially of, like, the inciting events, hard at all, or think about them at all, it just, like, completely falls apart and crumbles. Yeah. It's 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 not good. It's not good. I still, but there's I... still that bit of magic, but it was a joy to honestly rewatch it and see how much my own perspective had shifted. Changes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I mean... Honestly, it's a really fun one to dunk on and it's not totally painful to watch. And that that's the only bar that a rom-com has to exactly. clear for me. Yeah. Laura, thank you so much for joining us and for picking serendipity out of our list because it was it was really fun to discuss, actually, despite our low ratings. It was fun to discuss. I learned a lot about myself on the rewatch. Can you tell the people where they can find you and your work before... Before we finish. Yes, you can find me on uh, Twitter, L.E. Bassett, same name on Instagram. uh, And you will find my work in The Cut and New York Magazine starting in January. And on that note, that is it for this episode of Love to See It with Emma and Claire. Thanks to our wonderful guest, Laura Bassett. Love to See It is produced by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray and Stitcher. This episode was edited by Talon Stradley. Our theme music is by Tamar Haviv and our art is by Celine Chang. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. If you like our show, please remember to follow us, rate us five stars, and leave a review for Love to See It. And of course, tell all of your friends about our show. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at claireandemmapod at gmail.com. You can also find us on TikTok at Love to See It Pod and on Instagram at claireandemmapod. And you can find our newsletter, Rich Text, on Substack at clarenceemma.substack.com. I'm also on social media at Emma Lady Rose. And I'm at Claire E. Fallon. We'll be back soon. Can you keep up? I like love Stitcher. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. 
There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.